to the Gospel of Luke, today continuing and concluding chapter 19 of the Gospel of Luke. If you were with us last week, you heard me say that because I am very punctual, because I'm always early, we were reading the triumphal entry a week before Palm Sunday. I forgot to mention that though I am always punctual, I am also long-winded. So today, on Palm Sunday, we are still on the triumphal entry. Uh, we are seeing Christ as he continues closer to Jerusalem and finally now entering the very gates of the temple, entering into the city of David in Jerusalem. And so we will see this today as we read Luke chapter 19, verses 41, and reading to the end in verse 48. Luke chapter 19, beginning in verse 41, reading to the end of the chapter in verse 48. Before we read this word, please join me again in a word of prayer as we seek the Lord's blessing on our study together. Let's pray. O gracious Lord and God, we pray that by your Spirit you would open our eyes, that you would lay us bare by your word that is sharper than a double-edged sword, that you would lay bare our sins, lay bare our needs, lay bare our, our great need for forgiveness and grace in the building up of your spirit. And laying us bare by your word, we pray that you would put us back together, fashion us after the image and the pattern of Christ. By your Holy Spirit, help us to walk with him and to follow him for your sake, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Hear now God's word as we find it in Luke chapter 19, beginning to read in verse 41. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. They will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And he entered the temple, began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything that they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. Thus far the reading of God's holy and inerrant word, may he bless our reading and our studying of it together. Uh, if you have already seen, if you've already watched all four seasons of the Netflix uh, show The Crown, you will remember the episode in season three that, uh, that retells the visit of Queen Elizabeth II to a mining disaster back in 1966. The real-life tragedy uh, was something like a man-made landslide. There on a mountain that sat above the Welsh town of Aberfan, there was a mound, three mounds actually, but one of the mounds uh, of mining waste, shale and other byproducts that they would pull out of the ground to get to the coal, piled 100 feet high on top of a mountain overlooking 
this village of Aberfan, and after a series of heavy rains, the waste on top of the mountain liquefied and slid down the mountain into the village below where it leveled and buried houses and buildings and an elementary school. All told, 144 people lost their lives. 116 of them were children. Now, if you've seen the episode, you know uh, what they played out there, that there were two real dramatic points that they zeroed in on. The first dramatic point was the fact that uh, Queen Elizabeth waited a full eight days before visiting the site of the disaster. And the second dramatic point was that when she stepped out of a home visiting uh, with uh, several families that had lost children and loved ones, she shed a single, quiet, refined tear in the sight of the paparazzi. Well, this is not something that's normally done. One contemporary reporter says the queen is rarely emotional in public. She prefers a stereotypical British stiff upper lip. Well, by the time of the Aberfan disaster, Elizabeth had been reigning already for 14 years, and that tear was the very first show of overwhelming emotion that the public had been able to see. In the 55 years since, she has been caught crying in public exactly four more times. That makes five tears in a nearly 70-year reign. And if you'd like, you can go online and you can find photographic documentation of every last one of them. I suppose that among monarchs, emotional transparency doesn't top the list of attributes that you're looking for. Kings and queens, rulers are supposed to be regal. They're supposed to be reserved, maybe even somewhat detached. Well, not so for our King Jesus. Luke's gospel records that after Jesus was hailed as king by his followers, his very first official action was a loud lamentation for the destruction that was coming upon Jerusalem. Verse 41, when Jesus drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. Better yet, he wailed over it. The word really means a loud lamentation. Sobs shaking his body, tears running down his cheeks. It may not look regal to some people, but it was the heart of the Savior who is human. It was a natural response of the Savior who didn't hide the sorrow in his heart over sinners. And for us, it is a window into the emotional life of our Savior. What is it that Jesus really cares about? What is it that breaks our Savior's heart? What is it that Jesus thinks is important enough to pour himself into and to labor for? We see here the heart of our Savior. And Luke is showing us Three attributes of our Savior in this passage. You see, first, our Savior's sorrow, and then his zeal, and finally his boldness. Sorrow, zeal, and boldness. The passage, of course, begins with Christ's sorrow. And if you imagine the scene, it must have been puzzling for those disciples because here they are, still on their way down the mountain. They haven't even gotten into the city yet, and they're They're overflowing with praise. Songs and palm branches and uh, and shouts of joy, and there is Jesus sobbing. 
it must have seemed out of place to them. And because today we're beginning in verse 41, you may feel inclined to be able to separate Jesus' sorrow from the joy of the disciples, but that's not the way that Luke puts it together. In fact, he has tied together this whole narrative of the entry into Jerusalem in a very intentional way. He does it with three mentions of the phrase drawing near. You see it in the passage that we read last week, beginning in verse 29. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, that's when he sent the disciples to gather the donkey. And then, in verse 37, as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, that's when the disciples began to praise and rejoice. And finally, in verse 41, and when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. Now this means, of course, that this is all still a part of the Palm Sunday procession. That these tears of Jesus are a part of his triumphal entry. More precisely, Jesus is weeping over the welcome that he did not receive at the triumphal entry. Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. See, when Jesus entered Jerusalem, it was a day of decision. Your king has come to you. He's humble. He's riding on the donkey. And Jerusalem, will you receive your king? Will you hear his words of peace as he speaks to the nations? Will you believe the word of his gospel? Will you submit yourself to his gentle yoke? Will you find the refreshment he has for your souls? Will you receive your king? Or will you be satisfied with your own self-sufficiency? It was a day of decision. And just like Jesus preached in every other town and city in Galilee and Judea, there were things that make for peace. There are things uh, like repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he laid this decision on the people in the city of Jerusalem. It was not the first time that they had had a chance to make this decision. Of course, Luke doesn't record all of Jesus' visits to Jerusalem. He, he doesn't record the first cleansing of the temple at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. He doesn't record when Jesus showed up at the Feast of Booze and invited everyone who was there, everyone who was thirsty, to come and to drink and, and to find rivers of living water in him. Luke doesn't record everything that could be said about the ministry of Jesus, but he gives us enough to know that Jerusalem had had a troubled history with her king. And maybe that was part of the sorrow of the triumphal entry. Maybe it had to do with more than just the rejection of this moment. Maybe it had to do with a, a pattern of rejection that had already been happening that preceded this entry into Jerusalem that had been happening from the very moment that Jesus began his ministry and even before when Jerusalem refused to receive all the prophets the Lord had sent. Well, there was a pattern. So Jesus said back in chapter 13, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. There was a long-standing pattern of rejection. The leadership in Jerusalem had rejected Jesus already in the past. They were rejecting him now as he entered as king, and 
and he knew before the end of the week, their rejection would be complete. They would hand him over to be beaten and to be crucified. And as Jesus draws near to Jerusalem, he sees the entire dysfunctional relationship between Jerusalem and her king laid out like a sketchboard. Every scene, every twist, every human decision laid out from start to finish. And he sees where it's headed. He sees the full sad resolution, the final rejection of his ministry. It's how it happens today, too. You know, we Presbyterians, we believe in God's absolute sovereignty. We trust in the doctrine of election that none of God's sheep will fail to hear his voice, will fail to hear him and follow him. We believe in these biblical truths, but we also live in time and space. We live as people, among people, and we can't see what's in the future, and we watch the reception of Jesus, we watch the rejection of Jesus play out in individual human decisions, step by step, we watch a pattern develop sometimes. We watch friends and family go through deep suffering, and we pray that maybe this would be the opportunity that the Lord would use to call them to himself. Sometimes it happens that way. A time of, of suffering, a trial becomes a day of visitation. It becomes an opportunity for mercy and the Lord softens hearts and he opens eyes and he pricks consciences to draw people out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of his beloved son. And praise God, we sometimes see the pattern going in that direction. We often see it going in the other direction as well. We watch it happen little by little as people drift from the faith. They drift from the Bible. They drift from the church. They drift from a profession of faith that they made once a long time ago and full of a, a congregation of people where they stood and said, yes, I believe, and yes, I will follow, and yes, I will trust in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that pattern often, that, that moment uh, when finally we've seen them and we've heard them, we know people who used to be walking with the Lord and, and then they come to the realization and they finally fess up and they say, I don't believe any of it anymore. And quite frankly, I don't think I ever did. And that moment, that final rejection often comes at the end of a very long pattern of, of rejections, of, of stiff neckedness against Christ. It comes often after a long willingness to sit under the preaching of the gospel. It comes after a long willingness to, to handle the things of God and yet to be inwardly resolved that they shall not penetrate deeper than the surface soil of their soul. I think that was part of what Jesus was weeping over in Jerusalem. It was the pattern of rejection that was playing itself out all over again. It was a cataract of unbelief that was clouding out the light of the gospel, making the people of the city blind to the king of peace who was among them. And eventually this rejection is going to lead to destruction and to judgment. And so in verses 43 and 44 there, Jesus foretells of the ruin that will come upon Jerusalem at the hands of the Romans in 70 A.D. Before you look at that judgment, look 
at that bold statement at the end in verse 44. All of this, Jesus says, will come about because they did not know the time of their visitation. We're people, we live in time and space, we watch things fold out, we can look back at the history books, we can find any number of of human reasons why it would play out this way, right? Any, any number of purely natural factors as to why this ruin would be so complete. We could look at the taxation of Rome. We could look at the revolt of the Jews. We could look at the clash of ideologies, uh, ideologies and, and religious might. We could number any number of things that might have contributed. But Jesus, who also believes in sovereignty, says, no, it's the judgment of God. It's the judgment of God because they did not notice when God drew near to them for mercy. They did not know the time of their visitation. The city will be rejected because they rejected their king. See, in the person of Jesus Christ, God had been drawing near to Jerusalem for mercy. But they wouldn't receive him. They wouldn't bow the knee to the Son. Even after Easter Sunday, even after the resurrection, many of them continued to try to silence the apostolic witness to the resurrection. And so within the generation, God would visit them again with judgment upon them. And he would forever destroy the temple that stood as a symbol of the entire sacrificial system, that stood as a symbol of the Passover lamb that they rejected when he was among them. And if you know anything about the history of Jerusalem, you know just how accurate Jesus' description was. The siege of Jerusalem was an agonizing five-month period of starvation that saw mothers cannibalizing the bodies of their dead infants just to remain alive in the city long enough to be burned and raped and murdered at the end. Josephus records that when the city was finally overtaken, when it was burned and torn down, Caesar Vespasian commanded that only a portion of the city wall, only three towers, be allowed to remain standing. Here's what Josephus wrote. The towers were to reveal to posterity how great a city Jerusalem had been and what sort of fortification Roman prowess had dominated. All the rest of the wall, which encompassed the city, the demolition teams leveled so that no one who would come there in the future would ever believe that the spot had been inhabited. And Jesus weeps. Over the days that are coming when Jerusalem would be hemmed in and torn down, when not even a stone would be left upon another. And his weeping is a window, a glimpse into the emotional life of our Savior. It's a glimpse into the sorrow that that Jesus had over sinners who were dying without him, who would not turn to him and find life. Christ knew better than anyone the fate that awaited Jerusalem for their rejection. Christ knew better than anyone the torments of hell that far outstrip the rage and the fury of the Roman Empire. And in the face of that ruin, B.B. Warfield says that obstinate unbelief convulsed Christ with uncontrollable grief. 
Why did Jesus weep outside the city? Well, he wept because he was filled with sorrow for lost sinners. But when Jesus entered the city, his sorrow gave way to another emotion. His sorrow gave way to zeal. Verses 44 and 45, I'm sorry, 45 and 46, he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. You may know that this is one of the passages that each of the four Gospels record. All four Gospels record some version of Jesus tossing the riffraff out of the temple. Interestingly, Luke's Uh, Luke tends to be long-winded on some things, like some pastors you know. Uh, Luke actually has the shortest version of all of the cleansings of the temple. And it's only in John's gospel where we find the theological rationale for what's going on here. It's in John chapter 2, verse 17, that tells us that when Jesus turned over the tables, his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So that's what this is. When Jesus stormed through the temple, it was about zeal. He did it because he was filled with with a holy passion to see the temple be devoted for true worship. That's what it was intended to be for. That's the kind of space it was meant to be. It had always been that way. It had always been the intention that the temple was for worship, a place where people could come and find communion with the Lord. Even all the way back in the time of the tabernacle, it was sometimes called the tent of meeting, the tent where the people would gather together. They would lift their prayers to the God of heaven, the tent where God promised that he would hear and answer and give relief and give forgiveness to his people. It was a place where God and man came together at the tent of meeting. So it was in the temple. Supposed to be a place of prayer, a place of communion with the Lord. The problem was that by Jesus' day, there was so much commerce. There was so much commotion happening in the temple that nobody could even hear themselves pray above the sound of the bleeding sheep and the clinking coins. You know how it happened. This is not your first Palm Sunday. You know uh, that as pilgrims traveled to Jerusalem for the Passover, each family... Each head of household was supposed to bring a perfect sacrifice. Somewhere, sometimes, some some priest got the great idea that it would be a lot easier for the people, really, wouldn't it, if if they could just bring money instead. Money travels a lot easier than, than livestock. So bring your money and come to the temple and buy your animals right here where you need it. Well, efficiency took over from there. The religious machinery of Uh, of the Jewish religion began to spill out into the outer courts of the temple and and pretty soon stalls and booths were set up and travelers could buy the livestock right there where they needed. It was so convenient. It's like going to those restaurants on the North Shore and they've got the tank and you can pick the lobster you want and just wait while they boil it for you. It's all there. It's all ready. It was so convenient. But convenience, especially in worship, always comes with a price. Here in Jerusalem, the price was the trivialization, the commoditization of worship. A religion that already struggled with legalism became that much easier just to to downgrade into a, a transaction. And then when Jesus compares the temple to a den of robbers, he confirms our suspicion. 
our suspicion that the people who are selling in the temple are really little better than cheats. Probably not at all better than cheats, really. They're sitting there and they're feeding off of the need of the worshipers. That quotation there, den of robbers, actually comes from, from Jeremiah 7. There in the Old Testament, the prophet uh, condemned the false sense of spiritual security that wicked people feel when they're in the house of the Lord. He said, will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, go after other gods that you haven't known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered. And then, only to go on doing all these abominations. Has this house, says the Lord through Jeremiah, has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? A den of robbers, of course, is like a pirate's hideout. It's a safe house. It's the place where the crooks gather, and they imagine that the hand of justice can't reach them. And there they are in the temple precincts. There they are, we know from ancient sources, overseen by the high priest Ananias himself, who one of his contemporaries called him the great procurer of wealth. That was Ananias' role. There they are, right in the temple, under the auspices of the high priest, and there they are, swindlers, fleecing God's sheep, imagining that they can get away with it. Oh, but the king has come to his temple. And he's seen the false religion that, that masquerades as an essential service. He has seen the convenience that really only serves as a cover for sin and for common greed. And in his zeal for worship, the king of peace cleaned house. Now when he did that, he did something else very important. When he, when he drove out those who sold, he opened a door for worship for those who needed it most. He opened a door for worship for the outsiders, for the non-Israelites. For those of other nations who would, who would gather, especially at the time of the feast, who were, were trying to seek and, and find some way to get to this God of Israel, this God who had promised a blessing on all nations through, through the seed of righteous Abraham. You don't suppose that the priest would allow uh, the, the sacrificial sales team to set up right next to the altar, right? I mean, there are some things that are just a bit too far. There are some spaces that must remain sacred. They would never allow sales and commerce to happen where, where pious Jewish fathers took their pious Jewish sons right in close to the best seats where they could, where they could stand and hear the benediction. Oh, that would never float. And so that means that most likely the tables that Jesus overturned weren't in the inner portion of the temple, but they were in the outer portion of the temple and the outer courts known as the court as the, of the Gentiles. They were probably in the only spot that was available in the temple to a non-Israelite. That's why in Mark's gospel, when Jesus overturns the tables and drives the people out, Mark records a fuller quote from Isaiah 56, 7. That Jesus drove them out saying, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. That's the end of that verse in Isaiah that Jesus is quoting. That's what was missing in the temple in Jerusalem. It was a space for non-Israelites to seek the God of Israel. 
It was a space in the worship of God's people where the outsiders could become insiders, where not love and no mercy could become loved, could become adopted, could become members of God's family. And that's why Jesus cleansed the temple, because he was zealous for true worship. He still is, by the way. Our Savior is zealous for worship that doesn't cover over our sins with false pretenses. He's zealous for worship that doesn't erect false barriers or our own little hurdles to keep some people on the outside and the good people on the inside. He's zealous for true worship where, where sinners can hear the gospel, where they can find communion and forgiveness with the God of the Bible. It's another window into the emotional life of our Savior. Our King Jesus sorrows over lost sinners. He is zealous for true worship. And thirdly, he is bold to make the gospel known. Bold to make the gospel known. Now it's in uh, these closing verses that we finally see something familiar in Jesus. If, if the, the weeping outside of the city was a puzzle uh, to his disciples, and if uh, his, his demonstration within the bounds of the temple clashes with that well-known cliche of gentle Jesus, meek and mild, well, here in verses 47 and 48, we find exactly what we've come to expect from the Lord Jesus Christ. There he is teaching as people flock to him, as they gather around, hanging on every word, it says. Now, if you wonder what it is that he's teaching, the answer is that he's teaching the same message he's been teaching. Three years of sermons and parables. He's teaching some variation of the message he carried in all of the villages, that the Holy Spirit has anointed him as the one who is to preach good news to the poor, the one who is to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He's preaching some variation of the message that people ought to strive to enter through the narrow door, that people ought to take up their cross and follow him, that we all ought to repent and believe because the kingdom of God has come. We don't have to wonder about the things that Jesus is teaching the people in the temple, nor do we have to wonder about the kind of response that he got whether from the people who loved to hear him or from the priests who wanted to silence him. Now, this is familiar too. All the way back in chapter 6, the first time that we heard that the scribes and the Pharisees, some of those uh, who are here now, the scribes particularly, and some of those who had set in on, uh, on Jesus' ministry in, in one of the towns, we read there that they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. It's the same theme we've seen over and over again. That Jesus teaches and, and some people love it and some people are infuriated. It's the theme we've seen that Jesus is bold, even in the face of opposition, to make the gospel known. And, and as he does that, he, he draws opposition, he draws rejection, he draws the attention of those who want him silenced or dead, whichever comes first. We've seen this theme already, but, but Luke is setting up the theme for the rest of this week, this, this holy week in Jerusalem. Every day he's doing this. Every day he's in the temple. 
when Jesus had come into the fullness of his notoriety in the public eye. Here is the one who, as a boy so many years ago, sat in the temple, and he asked questions, and he, and he peppered the teachers with, uh, with, with questions about theological truths, and he wanted their insight, and he sat at the feet of the teachers, but now he's returned as a man of authority. And over the next two chapters, we're going to read, we're going to watch as Jesus' opponents listen to his teaching. As they pepper him with questions, not to learn from him, but to trip him up. Hoping in vain to find something they can use against him. And they're going to publicly challenge his authority. They're going to privately plot behind the scenes, and and in their desire to see Jesus destroyed, they are going to commit slander and injustice and violence against an innocent man. And Jesus is aware of all of it. This is not new information for us. It certainly wasn't new information for Jesus. And yet he continues on his mission. He continues making the gospel known to anyone who will hear it. He taught in the temple every day, and the people were hanging on his words. It's not new information, but it is another opportunity to see what our Savior cares about. He didn't come to save himself. He came to offer himself up. He came to make himself a sacrifice for sinners. He knew that with each parable he spoke, with each word that he spoke to the embarrassment of the religious leaders, he was that much closer, one step closer to Calvary. He knew that every moment as the the people in Jerusalem flocked to him and not to them, that the religious leaders were growing in their animosity, their hatred, their, their resolution to see him put to death. But he did not shrink back. He didn't hide from those who wanted to silence him. He didn't keep quiet when they tried to trap him in his own words. Why? Well, yes. He did it because he, he meant to be rejected. He was putting all these things in place. He was headed for the cross, just as he has been since uh, chapter 9, but he was also doing it to make the gospel known. He was doing it to plant the seed of God's word in the hearts of many who were around them, so that after the resurrection, Peter could stand in the very same temple, and he could preach to some of those who were there, to some of those who heard him when he preached, while the leaders were rejecting him. Before the death and resurrection, Peter could preach, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And what was the response? We've never heard that before. We don't know who you're talking about. What was the response? Well, they were cut to the heart. They said, brothers, what shall we do? And, And upon receiving his word, those who received his word were baptized. They were added to that day about 3,000 souls. Jesus wasn't bold just for the sake of boldness. He wasn't fearless in the face of opposition just so he could stand there and say, I'm better than everyone who will come before me and everyone who will come after me. He was bold because he cared to make the gospel known even in the midst of opposition, even as some preached against him. He was bold to bear witness that would in time bear fruit. It's one more window 
into the emotional life of our Savior. He is the Christ who has poured his heart into the salvation of sinners. And so we've seen thus far that, that our, our Lord, our Savior, sorrows over lost souls. We've seen that he is zealous for worship that brings outsiders into communion with God. And we've seen that he was bold to make the gospel known even when he faced rejection. Now, if this is what our Savior cared about enough to weep and to storm and to teach in the face of opposition, isn't this what we ought to care about as well? Mark Jones has said, one of the problems of the church today is not that we're too emotionally driven, but that our emotions are not sufficiently shaped by the pattern of Christ. This is the pattern of Christ. Sorrow over lost sinners, zeal for true worship, boldness to make the gospel known. Will you pray that the Lord will give you that same attitude? Those same tears for the people who are around you every day who haven't heard the gospel, who have heard it and thus far the pattern of their life is rejection. Will you pray if you're one of his people, if you know that he has saved you to himself, will you pray that he will put his spirit in you, that he will recreate you after the pattern of his own emotional life, that you will care about the things that Christ cared about? Will you pray about that? Will you seek the Lord? Will you say, Lord, give me the heart of Jesus. Help me to see everywhere I go, even in the face of opposition, even if it's not very popular and nobody else wants to hear it, help me to be a bold witness. And through that witness, O oh Lord, bear fruit in others. This is the pattern of Christ our Savior. Would that the Lord would make this the pattern of his people as well. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, our God, we thank you for Christ who wept over those who rejected him. We thank you for Christ who says all heaven rejoices when even one sinner comes in repentance to the Lord. Oh, gracious Father, we thank you for our Savior who in the days of his flesh offered himself up with loud cries and groaning. He who was heard because of his reverence and delivered not from death but through death on our account. We thank you, O Lord, for the tears of our Savior and for his forgiving and gracious sacrifice. Help us to rejoice in it and help us to follow him as his people, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.